Horrific Network Entertainment. podcast man i am jimmy i am your host for this week as i am every week i think uh for you guys and i hope that you guys are enjoying the show this week is our second week our final week of salem coverage this is the salem witches voodoo and demons tour Um, And Murderers, I think, is also included in that title. But this was a really fun tour. This was, um, you know, it starts on Essex Street in Salem. So, like, right in the middle of all the attractions. Um, Essex Street is an interesting place to kind of describe to you guys. Because it it literally is kind of like a uh, combination of historical stuff and, like, touristy stuff. So there's like a you know several hundred year old graveyard right next to like a walk through haunted house, you know literally like a quarter mile away. It, so, and even like closer context is like a historical um, building that's hundreds of years old, right next to the. Uh, like horror wax museum that this dude has like this crazy collection that he didn't let you photograph which was crappy because it was a dope collection that would you could get super cool pictures with and that guy was kind of a jerk anyway this ghost tour was cool in the sense that it like really and like the stuff that he was just talking about like it it hit man like there was stuff like that that happened um on the tour our camera wigged out and so anyway this was a cool experience next week we will begin uh with our sinister creature con uh interview audios so stay tuned for that i'll have like more movie news and other shit but now for now it is uh, the Salem Ghost Tour, so I hope you enjoy it. Stay tuned. But or not, there are 73 of them, and that's too many. But this is the original and best, so thank you for being here. My name is Mike, Dr. Vitkin. You recognize me from the website. Before we get started, I've got to warn you that you might get scared. We've had people faint, we've had people scream, we've even had people pee their pants. It might be you, who knows? Probably not, but it's happened. Sometimes people get scared because they hear scary stories that gets into their imagination. Other times, though, people really believe they have ghostly encounters at the places we visit. Every location you're going to see tonight is a true haunted site. The ghost stories come from our own investigations. History's true, too. We've spent years of research in facilities like the Phillips Library over there 
combing through the records, people were keeping during the days off with trials. We were looking at the jailkeeper's records. We were looking at the diaries. People were writing as they were tortured in the dungeon. So tonight, when you learn about the witch trials, it's from the point of view of the people who suffered through it. Just the real history. So if you have questions, go ahead and ask me. If there's anything I don't know or that you don't believe, look it up. You know you're hearing the real stuff tonight. So as we walk, please watch your step. You'll notice some of the old streets and sidewalks aren't all that even. I hate for you to trip and get into and turn into a ghost in tomorrow's store. Not long ago, someone tripped on the bricks hit the ground so hard their nose came off their face and there was blood everywhere, so please watch out. They were an old lady holding on by a flap of skin, so please be careful. Now take a lot of photographs, too. I know it sounds obvious because it will be dark soon, but use the flash on your camera. Doesn't matter if it's night or day. If you want to get ghostly energy to show up on film, always use your flash. The flash bounces off the energy, helps it appear visible. There's three types of energy that we may encounter. The first and the most common are what are called orbs. Are you familiar with the orbs? They do not show up to the naked eye. They only show up after the photograph. Orbs are perfect. What color energy? They're the same color all the way through. If your orb has a gap in the center, that's your own flash you've got a picture of. Real orbs are solid, and they're just leftover energy. Imagine if you had a strong emotional connection to a place Final warning before we start. 
Some people like to take a moment and protect themselves. Some people cast a spell for protection. Some people say a prayer. If you do anything like that, now is a good time to do it. Because in the past, people have been claimed that they've been followed home by energy they encounter at these haunted places. Take a moment to get ready, then we'll begin. How are you guys tonight? <laughs> nice to see you. Does everybody feel prepared? Right, I'm just going to send a message letting them know we're starting, and then we'll get going. And let's head this way. Started with my roommate and I, casual stuff, uh, opening lights on, all that kind of like traditional Hollywood stuff. Yeah. And then it progressed to one night I was lying in bed, and I don't even know what time it was, but kissedly close to my ear, I felt the breath said, "Hey, dude, good morning." Really? Just as that, powerful as that? Yeah. So we are going to be crossing a number of busy streets tonight, and as we do, please watch your step. You're quickly going to learn why the Massachusetts drivers are sometimes called mass holes. Stay on the sidewalks and the crosswalks, please. This way. Um, so, after that, I asked my roommate if he experienced anything weird. He was like, yeah, I thought you tried to wake me up the other night. Oh, really? And so then we did some investigation, found a medium. She came to the house, had no idea who either one of us were, did her thing, and she immediately said, you know, he likes you two better than the previous tenant. And I was like, okay, why? She's like, too many dogs. Keep saying too many dogs. Well, the previous owner bred dogs. Wow. Um, then, no, no, we had no idea who she was until we looked her up. Then uh, we uh, asked her, well, why does she like us? He and I used to do a thing where we would have drinks, made time to hang out no matter how busy we got, and watch a concert on YouTube. We called it Concert Wednesdays. She goes, he really likes concert Wednesdays. <laughs> and I was like, Do you know so, who he might be? So she just told us that he was on the property. Just right up against the wall here, please. Can everybody in the back still hear me okay? So right across the street is St. Peter's Church. You'll notice that the architecture on the back an awful lot different from what's up front. That's in part because that little back area, that was added on later. What used to be right back there was a graveyard. When it was time to enlarge and renovate the church, there was nowhere to build. The tombstones got moved up front, where we'll see them in a moment, and they paved over the bodies to build the rest of the church. That means that people going to church in there, they're doing it on top of the graveyard. It happens every day in Salem. And it's not just the church that's like that around here either. 
As you leave town, you might drive by a shopping center called the North Shore Mall. Even the mall is built in part on a colonial era burial site. There's bodies everywhere in New England. <laughs> so, she said she is scared. Everybody, please stay close, stay in the crosswalk as we go. Fast forward to me getting married to my wife. She has seen him on full body in close so everybody's on the sidewalk. Now you may want to get a quick photograph here and if you do you might end up with more than just the beautiful art on the stones. We had a private tour for two ladies. They showed up drunk. They weren't paying attention but they got a picture here that sobered them right up. When they checked their camera there's an apparition staring right back at them from between the tombstones. So if you'd like try your luck with the picture here and we'll move on to one of the most infamous locations from the witch trials. And if anybody likes American Revolution history, take a look at that little metal ornament that indicates the person the stone represents is an American Revolution How far back in history this church goes, the original version predates the American Revolution. So take a picture if you'd like, then we'll head on. I do. Right here? No. But it had like a little face focusing thing? Now, did anybody else's cameras just do anything funny? I'm going to talk about it a little bit later on the tour, but oftentimes in haunted places, you will experience electrical malfunction sometimes. And somebody's camera right now. Start getting weird, please. This way. It happened here? Mine's doing it at the like right behind the tree. That's right in the area we got the apparition yeah. picture. Did it behind the tree? Right by the tree. It kept doing the circle focus thing. Oh, there's a lot more. Everybody, please stay close. We're going to be crossing here in just a moment. This way.
So this might seem like a strange place to stop, just on the edge of the parking lot, but this is where one of the most terrible events from the witch trials took place. Does the name Giles Corey sound familiar? Yes, sir. If you had to read the Crucible in school or if you went to the museums, they might have told you. Those guys are going to be our next ghosts. Oh. If you went to the museums, they might have told you that Giles Corey was a hero, a brave man who stood up for what he believed in during the oppression of the witch trials. Well, Giles Corey did stand up for himself, but he was not a hero. Giles Corey was an angry, miserable, mean old man, and most people in Salem hated him. Giles Corey was always fighting and arguing with his neighbors. Once during a disagreement, he got so mad at one of his servants, he took the man's cane away from him and bludgeoned the man to death crushing his skull with his own cane. Giles Corey might have beaten his first wife to death, but he did accuse his final wife of witchcraft. That's the kind of person Giles Corey was. He wasn't a nice guy, but he was not a witch. So why was he accused? It's because there were sneaky laws in Salem. Say, you accused me of witchcraft, I got found guilty. Because you made the accusation, you could try to take some of my money and property. The corrupt city government and Sheriff Corwin would try to steal the rest. Well, Giles Corey was wealthy and nobody liked him, so people lined up to accuse him. But he knew the law said as long as he did not make a plea of innocent or guilty in court, they could not bring him to trial. If they didn't bring him to trial, they couldn't find him guilty, so they couldn't kill him, and they couldn't take his property. He thought he would keep his mouth shut, and eventually the people in Salem would come to their senses and let him go. But that never happened. Sheriff Corwin wanted to make an example out of Giles Corey. Sheriff Corwin was just as mean and stubborn as Giles Corey was. At the time, the dungeon where the accused witches were held was right across the way there, where that sign says office space. The land we're standing on right here was an open field. The sheriff dragged Giles Corey from the dungeon, brought him over here. He took a shovel, dug a pit in the ground, the pit was deep enough, Giles Corey's clothing was ripped off his body, and he was thrown naked into the grave. Then the sheriff took a big piece of wood, probably the door from a house, and laid it out on Giles Corey's body. Then he started to stack heavier and heavier stones on top of that. This was a terrible interrogation called pressing. The idea with pressing was to physically press a confession out of the victim. Now, most people who got pressed they died or confessed right away. But not Giles Corey. Even though he was an elderly man, he suffered for three days. And as the days went on, the sheriff would look at him, dying in the grave, and ask, how do you plead, innocent or guilty? Well, Giles Corey didn't say anything. So Sheriff Corwin kept adding heavier and heavier stones to his body. By the end of the third day, there were thousands of pounds of weight pressing down on Giles Corey. His eyes were bulging out of his head. He was gasping for breath. His face was purple and his tongue was poking out of his mouth. The sheriff knew he'd beaten Giles Corey. He took a stick from the ground and jammed his tongue back down his throat. He asked him for the last time. He said, you're going to die. How do you plead? Well, this time, Giles Corey looked right up at Sheriff Corwin, spat at him as hard as he could, and after days of torture, finally said something. Giles Corey told Sheriff Corwin to add more weight. 
Sheriff Corwin was so enraged by Giles Corey's defiance, he picked up the heaviest stone he could and smashed it down on the old man. Giles Corey's ribcage shattered. People who saw it happen say he was so crushed, his organs squashed out his sides. But as he lay there dying, the last words he was able to say were, damn you, Sheriff Corwin, I curse you and all of Salem. And with that, Giles Corey perished. Now, Sheriff Corwin, he dropped dead, too, shortly thereafter. He was only in his 30s, and he had a sudden heart attack and died. Now, Giles Corey was not a witch, but somehow his curse came true. Nearly every sheriff in Salem since then, up until the present day, has died young or been forced to retire with heart attacks or blood disease. But it's not just the sheriff who suffers. Anyone who sees Giles Corey pays the price. I hope you don't see him tonight. If just one or two people see Giles Corey, it's a personal tragedy for the witness. The whole big group sees him. It's something bad for the entire community. Now, a recent sighting happened here. It was several Octobers ago. Now, October is a busy time in Salem. We're like the Halloween capital of the world. <laughs> tonight, as we walk around, you'll see a really big tour. It'll be 40 or 50 people. A small tour will be a private group. In October, though, squeezed into a group with maybe a hundred people because everybody wants to come here for Halloween. And in October, we need to bring security with us on the tour. In 2016, we were working with a man named Russ. Now, Russ was a Salem witch. That was his religion. He also said he was a druid. He believed he could see and feel and sense spirits around him. One night, he was here. I was telling the story about Giles Corey. Russ said it felt like his chest became heavy. He couldn't breathe. He said it felt like his throat was constricted. He got the impression that Giles Corey was here with us and was angry that we were telling these stories. He said that Giles Corey does not like the fact we drag his name through the mud every day. He just wants to be left in peace. Now, I thought our friend would let his imagination get the better of him, but I should have taken him seriously. I called him two days later to see if he wanted to work with us again. I got work from his family, and Russ had dropped dead in the night. Shortly after his alleged encounter with Giles Corey, our friend passed away with no medical condition leading up to it. That's the kind of thing which happens to people when they do think they've seen Giles Corey. So if you don't notice him this evening, that even if you don't think you've seen him or felt his presence, it's possible you've already had a close encounter. Based on the location of the old dungeon, the paces Corwin took with Corey, you can pinpoint that he would have been pressed somewhere in this vicinity. They never exhumed his body from the earth. They left him here where they pressed him and eventually paved over the remains. So it's possible that right now you might be standing on Giles Corey's resting place. I don't recommend tempting fate and photographing here. We're going to go visit the dungeon location. That's the site that turned me from a complete skeptic to someone who's professional paranormal research. This way. I stood here on him. Saw every time. There's a pipe for him to breathe. Everybody, please stay up on my walk with the
started here in Salem. Does anyone have favorite ideas why people were acting so strange here in 1692? That's a better answer than we get most of the time. Most nights people say something pretty weird. They say ergot poisoning. Does that sound familiar? Fungus grows an old moldy rye bread. If you eat it, you will hallucinate. It's got the same kind of chemical composition as LSD, but you don't want to try it. If you eat ergot, you're not just going to get high, you'll get a horrible side effect called necrosis. Necrosis is similar to leprosy. Your fingers and toes and other parts of your body start to rot and decay and fall off. You also get constant vomiting and diarrhea and permanent brain damage. No one mentioned those symptoms here during this trial, but despite what some scholars used to propose, we can be sure that no one here was accidentally eating moldy bread with ergot getting confused. That didn't happen. Some people say it's all about three money, which trials really was a great way to steal land from the neighbors and settle old grudges. That was selfish people taking advantage of the situation, not the cause. What set the whole thing off was a big misunderstanding one completely innocent woman and some bored, scared teenage girls and kids. The woman's name was Tichuba, and she was enslaved, but she was not who you might imagine. At the time, most of the enslaved people here in the New World, they were of African descent, and not Tichuba. She was an American Indian. She was from the Arawak tribe in South America. She was sold into slavery. She ended up in Barbados and was forced to work on a sugar plantation. She worked with the enslaved African people, and from them, she absorbed their culture and their belief systems. She started to do things their way. But when the slave owners came around, the enslaved people had to cover up their rituals and pretend what they were doing was to honor the Christian saints. That combination of Christianity, African religion, native and Caribbean influence, all that stuff blended together, evolved into what we would call voodoo. Tituba was practicing voodoo years before that faith even had a name. Then the poor woman was sold again. Ultimately, she ended up in Salem, Massachusetts, property of Reverend Paris, the Puritan minister. Now, it's terrible to think the minister was a slave owner, but it's ironic she was doing voodoo right under his nose. He had no idea. Some of the teenage girls and kids in Salem discovered Tituba. They learned that if they went to her, she would entertain them. Tituba would tell the girls stories and folklore. She claimed she could tell their fortunes using egg whites. Point of view. She wasn't doing anything wrong. She was doing her job, taking care of the kids. She was trying to make friends by telling stories. She was innocent. The girls felt guilty. Because of their strict religious fanatic upbringing, they knew that if their families caught them with Tichuba, they could be punished and beaten. They feared if the church knew what was up, they might even be excommunicated. They seriously thought they could go to hell for spending time with Tichuba. And if they felt so guilty, they probably should have stopped, don't you think? The problem is, they were bored. Put yourself in their shoes. They were being raised as Puritans. Now, Puritans were Christians, but not, you know, nice Christians. They were so strict, they make the Westboro Baptist Church people seem normal by comparison. The life of the Puritans was hard. They would work, church, and hoping to die and go to heaven. They were so strict that even though they were devout Christians, the celebration of holidays like Christmas were banned because people were enjoying themselves. As hard as life was for all the Puritans, it was even worse for the girls. They weren't getting to go to school and be educated. They weren't supposed to spend leisure time with their friends or go on dates. The life of a young Puritan woman was worth chores around the house, 
until they got forced out as servants for wealthier homes. If they were from wealthy families, they could be married off. Sometimes they didn't even get to pick their own partners. It's likely they'd die young in childbirth or get sick and die of disease at a young age anyway. These girls had nothing to look forward to except for Tituba and her weird stories. They kept going to see her. The problem is, the guilt that they felt kept building up and building up. And of course they got caught. But the first girls who got caught were the Reverend's daughter and the Reverend's niece. They felt so guilty they panicked. They started twitching and shaking and speaking in tongues. Nowadays, we know stress can bring on physical symptoms. We call it hysteria. But back then, the ignorant doctor, Dr. Griggs, when he examined the girls, he could not figure out what was wrong with them. He just said they'd been bewitched. Now, this idea caught on. Other people in the community saw that the first girls were out of trouble and realized all they had to do was say that they, too, had been bewitched. They could get away with just about whatever they wanted to. And at first, it was just teenage rebellion. These were kids from strict home. Talk back to their parents and skip their chores. Then it got serious. Selfish people started to accuse innocent people for their own greedy reasons. That's when the executions really took off. For example, George Burroughs. He was a minister, not a witch. But he was outspoken that some people owed him a lot of money. Rather than pay him back, they called him a witch. He was hiding out up in Maine. They dragged him back down to Salem. They found him guilty, put the noose around his neck. Before this innocent man was killed, he was asked if he had any last words. And of course he did. The minister, George Burroughs, recited the Lord's Prayer word for word. Now this shocked the audience who come out to enjoy watching the execution. According to Puritan superstition, witches were not able to say the Lord's Prayer. They knew he wasn't a witch and demanded George Burroughs be released. But Cotton Mather, the minister in charge of the persecution, he really wanted to hang George Burroughs. He came up with a bizarre excuse. He told everybody that George Burroughs really was a witch. The only reason he could say the prayer is because he had been possessed by the devil. He said the devil often takes the shape of an angel of light. Based on that, they hanged the minister. But Cotton Mather wasn't done. He wanted to prove that George Burroughs was bewitched and possessed. He petitioned the governor for ownership of George Burroughs' head. He sawed the head off the body and boiled it in water for several days until the eyeballs popped. To Cotton Mather, that was proof George Burroughs had been working with the devil of the past for science during the witch trials. It gets even worse. Two dogs were executed. One of the things they said the dogs did was giving people the evil eye, and I'm sure they deserved it. Would they have hanged your dog? Yes. Yes? You're like the first person who hasn't said no to that. <laughs> what kind of dog do you have? I used to have a black rabbit. Oh no, those are too good to hang. Yeah. Now today we laugh about it because it sounds absurd. Could you imagine living in a community so scared that might have your pets were witches in disguise? That's how Paranoid that Puritans were about everything. The witch trials just kept going. People kept getting accused and kept getting executed. The only reason it finally came to a real end is when the governor's family got accused. At first, Governor Phipps thought the witch trials was a local phenomenon that would take care of itself. Then Cotton Mather had the idea that he could take power by accusing the governor's wife. The governor wouldn't end the thing. The people in the dungeons were eventually freed, but it was not until the 1990s 
that all of the executed victims were finally pardoned. And that's just the people who got executed. There were some victims who died in the dungeon or who got convicted and weren't actually killed. The final one of them was pardoned last summer. The final Salem witch was declared innocent in 2022. That's how recently this history can reach us. Now today, Salem really is the witch city. You can't escape this legacy here. If you grow up in Salem and you play sports in school, you know what your team is? Yep, it's the witches. There's a witch on the football helmets and the cheerleaders outfits. When you see the Salem police, look at their badge. There's a witch on the police badge. There are witch shops and witch museums everywhere. Some of it's very respectful and historic. Some of it's pretty silly, but it's got a place in Salem. I'm glad that you guys and the folks on the other tours too want to come and learn about the witch tribes. I think that if people hear this history, maybe this kind of persecution won't have to happen again to other innocent victims in the future. But unfortunately, there are still people in Salem, even today, who are ashamed and embarrassed by the witch tribes. There are some politicians and old townies here who think it gives us a bad reputation. They want to cover it up. That's why some historic sites you try to visit end up being paved over parking lots with no plaques on them. Or in the case of the dungeon itself, this modern office building right here. This is the site of the original witch dungeon. It was rotting away on this land until the 1950s. The city of Salem sold the land and tore down what remained of the dungeon. Rather than try to restore it, they used most of the wood from the dungeon as firewood. That's how much they wanted to erase that history. Now, the dungeon that was here was miserable. Most of the cells were underneath the earth. They were so tight and narrow, they were called coffin cells. The prisoners couldn't even sit down and be on their feet their whole sentence. When it rained, the cells would flood with water. The inmates were up to their waist in it. If someone managed to fall asleep, they'd wake up with rats eating their fingers and toes off. They had to buy their own food. They had to pay rent every night. If they were going to be executed, they had to pay the execution fee. If they could not afford their own execution, they would not be set free. They'd be starved or tortured until they died down in the dungeon. We know that there were 19 innocent men and women hanged as witches in Salem. Giles Corey was painfully pressed to death. The poor dogs, who were not black labs, were killed too. The number of people down in the dungeon died of torture and neglect has never been accurately recorded. It makes sense they're still haunting and they want to be recognized. That's why I think this place is so active today. Now this dungeon site turned me from a complete skeptic to someone whose profession is paranormal research. When I went to the university in Salem, I didn't believe in this phenomena. I got a job here, an office down in the basement, right where they say the dungeons would have been. Every afternoon, me and the girl I worked with down there, we would hear what sounded like heavy footsteps stomping up and down the hallway. We'd look out, nobody was there. Some of the lights turning on and off, back and forth, until each room along the way was illuminated. Now, this was creepy, and it happened around the same time each day. They say that Sheriff Corbin had gone cell to cell tormenting his victims. I thought this was weird, but it didn't convince me. What convinced me something was going on is when my friend was attacked by someone we couldn't see. She was sitting down at her desk. She rose up the stand. She said it felt like two cold hands grabbed her shoulders and shoved her down into her seat. She stood up again and was pushed right back down. She stood for the third time. She was slapped across the face. We heard the slap ring out and she screamed. A huge red belt appeared on her face shaped like a hair. She 
said it felt like she struck incredibly hard and received a shock of electricity right through her body. Now, the electric sensation makes sense. Often in haunted places, we see a big increase in electromagnetic energy. That's why we use the tool called the EMF detector on our investigations. Now, my friend was so scared she quit on the spot, she never came back here. I don't blame her. I thought it was disturbing to even see that happen. Now, occasionally, people who work here call us. They say they want paranormal investigation or history about the property. We're happy to help with that. But I remember one company said they wanted an exorcism. I had to tell them we don't do that. I like to try to disprove a place is haunted. If we cannot disprove it, we try to figure out who is haunted, what kind of energy is here. These guys really wanted an exorcism, so I got them in touch with the place. Who doesn't? When he his candles, he started his prayer, and in the middle of the ritual, the man fell to his knees in tears. He kept saying, they don't want me here, they don't want me here. He packed up his stuff and he ran out. To this day, the priest won't even admit coming here at all. That's how he catch this something to be. If you'd like to photograph and walk up the street, I'd recommend getting low to the foundation. Most of the haunting happens beneath the earth, down where the dungeons were. Also, wall that says Old Witch Jail, but you'll notice that jail is spelled in the old-fashioned style with a G instead of a J. That was a real spelling in 1692, they put it like that on a modern sign on purpose, hoping that as people go by quickly, they don't quite realize what they're looking at. That was just another way they tried to disguise what happened here. on it. So if she starts seeing stuff, she'll tell us she does at home. Yeah, if she's pointing stuff out along this route, you want to take pictures where she's looking.
tell us, okay? got burned at the stake. Let's actually go this way. There's a car coming. I don't want to get you all run over. Come close. during the inquisitions in France and Italy and Spain and Germany. But here in Salem, we were implementing English law and the punishment was hanging. <coughs> but don't think it was a nice, easy hanging. The nooses the Puritans used were specifically designed to slowly strangle a person. You might be alive for as much as an hour if you were strung up on Gallows Hill. And that's if you're lucky. Sometimes they would drop you too fast, the noose would tighten too quickly, and your head would pop right off. So just because nobody was being burned doesn't mean it was an easy death to be killed here in Salem. Now something people ask often is what happened to Tichuba, the totally innocent woman who accidentally started the witch trials? Well, honestly, she was one of the only smart people here in 1692. They put her on the witness stand and asked her, are you a witch? And you know what she said? She said yes, and because she admitted it, the Puritans didn't know what to do with her. They figured that because she had admitted it, she must have repented and was done being a witch. And the Puritans loved penitent sinners, so rather than execute Tituba, they made her the star witness in the trials. They had her point the finger at other potential witches. And there were a lot of people she wanted to accuse. But unfortunately, she did not have money to pay her rent in the dungeon, so she had to languish there until somebody purchased her. The last official real record of Tituba is a note in the jailkeeper's diary that says, Today an ignoramus purchased Tituba. No one knows for sure who the ignoramus was, but some historians think it was her husband, John Indian, who had been saving up money to set her free. That's where Tituba's story ends, but I think it's cool she was able to save her life by confessing that she was a witch. What would you have said? But then they would have hanged you. The way to get out of it was to confess. There was another girl named Abigail Hobbs, and she went into the court and she said she was a witch, but she didn't stop there. She said she personally knew the devil. She said she did spells with the devil, and she said she had sex with the devil and enjoyed it. And you know what? They did not hang Abigail Hobbs. They figured a confession was as good as glorifying God. They could use her to try to root out other witches. The Puritans figured this confession thing out pretty quickly, but because of their religious faith, they did not want to perjure themselves and mentally sentence themselves to going to hell. They stuck to the truth and got killed for it. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the most interesting thing about Tituba is this. Through the years of tours and research, we found pretty convincing ghost stories about just about all the witch trial people. Seems like they're all still haunting us. We've also met a lot of people who can trace their family history and genealogy for witch trial participants, both victims and accusers. And we've met a lot of people who say they're reincarnated for witch trial victims. I must have met about 15 different Bridget Bishops and John Proctors. But no one has ever said they've seen Tichuba's ghost. No one's ever traced their family tree back to her, and no one's ever claimed to have shared her past memories. 
seems like Tichuma is the only one of the witch trial people who's able to find peace after it was all done. Now, if you like the story about Tichuba, there's a great book called Tichuba, Reluctant Witch of Salem. It's one of the best things I've read on the witch trials in a long time. I'd really recommend that one. She was the first person in Salem hanged for the crime of witchcraft. Now, obviously, she was not a witch. What she was was an unpopular woman. Bridget Bishop drank and gambled. She flirted with married men. She wore clothing. Strict Puritan said was too provocative. Now, by our standards, she would have been modestly dressed, but the Puritans thought she was inappropriate. She kept a messy yard and picked fights with her neighbors. There was a rumor that she had an illegal tavern in her home. Bridget Bishop might have been a bad neighbor, but that did not make her a witch. However, calling for a witch was a quick way to get rid of her, and she was quickly accused. Now, she was no stranger to false accusations. When she lived in England, Bridget Bishop there had been accused of bewitching her husband to death. No one really believed that. But here, during the political frenzy of the Salem witch hunt, when Bridget Bishop was accused again, the crazy charges against her stuck, and the charges were bizarre. The Puritans had done away with the need for evidence in a witch trial. Your word against the witch, the witch almost always lost. They also believed in what was called spectral evidence. They felt that a witch could send their spirit out of their physical body to harm people in the real world, like an evil version of what we would call astral projection. For example, there was elderly Rebecca Nurse. She was a bedridden old lady who never harmed anybody. She was accused of sending her spirit out of her body, sitting up in the rafters in church, then swooping down and biting people during the services. I'm pretty sure she did not do that. And that's part of why this innocent grandmother everybody loved was executed. Bridget Bishop was accused of something just as foolish. She was accused of bewitching the men in Salem. Women catch their husbands dreaming and fantasizing about Bridget Bishop. And rather than realize these guys liked Bridget Bishop, they concluded she was in their mind, making them think about her. That's what got Bridget Bishop taken from the land that she owned here and locked up in the dungeon. While she was in the dungeon, two contractors who worked on her home came forward and said they found a few strange little dolls in the house. When the dolls were exposed, everyone panicked. They called them poppets. We called them voodoo dolls. The idea was someone would make a little effigy of a person, say the doll represented somebody, then they damaged the doll the person who represented would suffer in real life. Now you don't have to worry, I don't have any puppets or voodoo dolls with me tonight. And even if I did, it'd be fine. I could put the worst curse on you I wanted to. I don't want to and I'm not going to, but I could, and you'll still be fine. As long as you're skeptical and did not believe in the curse, or you kept yourself spiritually protected. If you protected yourself or did not believe in it, the curse could not harm you. But if you believed in it and internalized it, any little bad thing that happened, you would blame on the curse. People have even scared themselves to death that way. The Puritans were very superstitious. They saw the dolls, and they knew Bridget Bishop was out to get them. She was confronted. She admitted she made the thing. She told the truth. They were not puppets or voodoo dolls. They were just dolls, children's toys. She said that making dolls was like a hobby, and they were gifts to give to kids. That sounds reasonable, but no one believed her. Based on having a few dolls in the house, Bridget Bishop was loaded into a cart at the dungeon, taken right down this pathway here, brought up to Gallows Hill. When they got to the hill, they strung her up by the neck, 
They hanged her until she died, then they let her body decompose in the branches of the hanging tree. Once it was so rotten it couldn't hold together, it fell out and was kicked into a shallow, unmarked grave. It was against the law to give a proper burial to a witch. If you were hanged, and they were hanging men too, if you got hanged and you tried to put him in a real grave, if you were caught, you would have been next on the list. Most of the families never dared rescue their loved one's body. With the exception of Rebecca Nurse, George Jacobs, and maybe John Proctor, we believe that all the witch trial victims are still in the earth up on Gallows Hill. Now, we are not going to go there tonight because it's not a safe place to visit. I'm not even really supposed to tell you where Gallows Hill is. I mean, if you ask nicely, I'll tell you, but I won't go there with you. It's not safe. If you go there tonight, you might run into people you don't want to meet. People go there for rituals. Now, rituals are fine, but sacrifices have taken place too, so you don't want to get involved in that. You might wait until it's a nice day, but you'll notice it is dead silent on the hill. You won't hear the wind blowing and the birds chirping. It's quiet as the grave up there. Even if you are totally skeptical and don't believe in this phenomena, you'll feel that as you walk up to the hanging site, you'll get the impression that someone is shadowing right behind you every step of the way. The hair on the back of your neck will stand up, and you'll realize you are not alone. Even animals won't go there. You might have heard your pets have a sixth sense about the supernatural. Cats and dogs are way more perceptive than people are. And we've seen that to be the case. Whenever I do an investigation, I like to bring the dog along, and we've gotten pictures of him sniffing out orbs, ectoplasm, all over. But on Gallows Hill, he won't even get out of the car. He'll just sit in the back whimpering until we leave the scene. If even animals don't want to go, I'd be very careful. And you know who else doesn't like Gallows Hill? Professional ghost hunters. If you watch shows like Ghost Hunters and Ghost Adventures, you know they come to Salem. And sometimes when they do, they'll get in touch with us, and I'll tell them where they should investigate. The first place I tried to send the biggest ghost show on TV was Gallows Hill. But their producers wrote back almost immediately, saying they'd rather go somewhere more controlled. That's when I recommended this place. Nowadays, the building has Turner's Seafood, an excellent restaurant, but it's incredibly haunted. In the old times, this building was the Lyceum Hall. Back during the witch trials, Bridget Bishop owned all of this land. We believe her house was right here where the restaurant is. When the ghost hunters were filming their show in here, they caught on camera a door that opened up all on its own. When I asked out loud, is anybody here? cash register malfunctioned and kept printing out one word. He kept saying, hello, 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 like somebody was trying to communicate. But one night around closing time, several glasses from the shelf behind the bar levitated, hung in the air for a second and sailed through the air, smashed on the wall, and sent shards of glass flying everywhere. That's what's called poltergeist activity. But physical objects that should not move move around under their own power. Lucky that no one was hurt when that happened, and it was caught on surveillance tape. After the tour, if you go on YouTube and look up Lyceum Poltergeist, I think you can still find the video with the glasses flying and smashing. But I do recommend eating here. They've got the best clam chowder in Salem, but ask if they'll let you sneak up to the second level. On the second floor, we've captured amazing evidence. When spirits manifest themselves, often the temperature will drop and become icy cold. You want to put together a ghost hunting kit of your own, get night vision equipment. Invest in a thermal imaging camera and a digital thermometer. You can track human-sized cold spots all around, and we've seen the vortexes up here many times. 
Now, fun fact about this place, a lot of people don't realize, in addition to being so haunted and historic, this building is where the first long-distance telephone call was made. Alexander Graham Bell had a laboratory in Salem, and he wanted to prove his invention. He called from here to his office in Boston. But towards the end of Bell's life, he tried to make a phone to talk to ghosts. Obviously, that did not work. But I wondered if maybe he'd been inspired by something he'd seen happen here. Now, as we walk up the street, we're going to take the same road that Bridget Bishop took to her execution. We're also going to walk right through where her apple orchard was planted. Sometimes in haunted places, people experience what's called an olfactory hallucination. It means that they smell an aroma they shouldn't be able to smell. A scent connected to the person haunted. You might smell the perfume someone wore a hundred years ago. You might smell the tobacco your dead grandfather would smoke. And on Bridget Bishop's land, her spirit is active. People say they get the floral scent from her apple orchard. So let me know if you smell that as we head up the street this way. About a mile and a half that way. In fact, if it were 1692 tonight, these buildings would not be here. We could look across town and see Gallows still looming in the distance. Considering the time of year it is, we could probably still see Bridget Bishop swinging in the breeze. It only hanged her a couple of days ago. They left the bodies hanging so everybody could see them and learn from their mistakes. Now, if you ask about Gallows Hill in Salem, you get conflicting answers. Some people try to tell you no one knows where it really is. Or they say it's in Danvers, the town next door. If people tell you that, they're either honestly confused or they're lying to protect you. The reason for the controversy is during the days of the witch trials, Salem was bigger. It included Salem Town, which is where we are now, and Salem Village, which split off and became our neighboring city of Danvers. But people got accused all over the place. Ipswich and Andover in Boston, even up in Maine. After the witch trials was over, no one wanted to admit it happened in their backyard. People in Salem have been trying to shift the blame to Danvers for hundreds of years. Some people in Danvers said, we don't know what you're talking about. Even though plenty of important people from Danvers were accused and were executed, every trial and every hanging happened in Salem city limits. If you look at a map from 1692, match it with one from now, you can see right where it happened. And I'm not really supposed to tell you the location, considering the city has finally put a memorial up there, I can tell you that. So if you do a GPS search for Proctor's Ledge Memorial, Proctor like John Proctor from the Crucible, you'll be right where the victims were executed and right where the bodies were dumped into the pit. Keep in mind it is very against the law to go there after dark. Creepy people hang out there all the time and it is the most negative haunted place in Salem. So if you're going to go, go during the day and be respectful. And now you know what you're looking for, Proctor's Ledge. In my opinion, the best time to go is early in the morning because sometimes you can find where people have left notes to their ancestors and ritual objects. This way. Go to the Nightmare Gallery. It's a monster wax museum. One of the best attractions in Salem. This way. So, who remembers the movie Hocus Pocus? I know a lot of people love Hocus Pocus. Recognize the building right in front of you? This is the old town hall. This is where they built the big Halloween ball in Hocus Pocus. You can see the exterior of the building in the movie, and up on the second floor of the mall, Mr. Miller said, I put a spell on you. Now, did anybody see the sequel? Yeah. They did not film any of that here. One thing I thought was kind of 
Court area we're walking on is made to look old. A lot of the buildings really do date back hundreds of years, but brickwork and stuff is all fairly modern. That Essex Street we walked on, those old working cobblestones, those were only put there in the 1970s. So where was this Oh, I'm sorry, what? This one, 1970s, what was this Oh, that street, Essex Street? That is arguably the oldest street in the United States. It was actually a path that the Native Americans used, and if you follow it, it goes all the way to Boston. Uh, back 30 or 40 years ago, it was paved over so people could drive up and down it. But when Salem started having a, uh, really started blooming as a place for visitors to come, they turned it into that pedestrian walkway to use the old style stones to make it look beautiful. So these stories are my favorite. Believe it or not, vampires are real. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. They're not supernatural. They don't fly. They don't turn into bats. They don't sparkle like in Twilight or anything silly like that. But what they do is they drink human blood. That's what makes somebody a vampire. The fact that they lust for your blood to drink. As far back as human history goes, people have been doing it. Every culture around the world has vampire stories. As long as the people on Earth wanted to drink your blood. Now the most famous vampire, of course, was Dracula. He inspired folklore, literature, movies. He was just as real as we are. His name is Vlad Tepes. He was from Wallachia, Romania, part of the world we call Transylvania. He was a bloodthirsty tyrant, but the people he ruled over loved him. He got rid of all the crime in his kingdom, like executing all the criminals. His favorite method of execution was impalement. Impalement. Sharpened spear is taken and stabbed through a person's body, through their chest, their stomach, or through their rear end until it pierces their internal organs and comes out their mouth. So they have to hang on the spear until all the blood drains out of them and die a slow, agonizing death from blood loss and internal injuries. Dracula loved impaling people. He made forests of corpses all around his castle. He said he did it to intimidate his enemies. He also did it because he liked it. He'd sit with the bodies every night and collect the blood that dripped from them. He'd soak up the blood with bread and he would eat it. That's where we get the idea of Dracula having a taste for blood. He was not the only medieval noble who liked blood. There was a woman named Countess Elizabeth Bathory. They called her the Blood Countess. What she would do is bathe in the blood of virgins. She thought that bathing in the blood of virgin girls would keep her young and beautiful forever. But before you go home and try it, it doesn't work. You'll probably enjoy it, but you won't live forever. By the time this woman was caught, it was revealed she had bathed in the blood of over 600 young girls. Now Dracula and Countess Bathory, they're historic people from a long time ago. But there are modern vampires among us today. According to current psychological theories, there's three types of them. The first and the most common are people called blood fetishists exactly what it sounds like. Blood fetishists are people who get excited by the sight, smell, or the taste of human blood. And even if you think that's gross, you don't have to worry about them. The blood fetishists almost exclusively drink blood from consenting victims. So unless you want them to drink your blood, they're going to leave you alone. But it gets more dangerous when you consider the imitation vampires. These are people who cannot separate fantasy from reality. You can go home today and watch a show like What We Do in the Shadows, or read a book like Interview with a Vampire. You know it's fiction, and you'd probably enjoy it. But the imitation vampires, they would see that media, and rather than be entertained, they would believe it. 
they would think that if they drank your blood, they could get powers like a fictional character. It does not work, they're mentally ill, but they still lust for your blood to drink anyway. But the most deadly are people called true vampires. True vampires suffer a psychological addiction to drinking human blood. It's not physical, it's in their mind. They don't get the blood they want, they can go into withdrawal like a drug addict. Sometimes they have a willing partner called a donor. The blood donor lets the vampire cut them or bite them and drink their blood. But if they don't have a donor, they've done terrible things. They've robbed blood banks, they've murdered people for blood. Salem's dark history attracts strange people. That includes people who want to drink your blood. That's why we talk about it on the tour. Because you may have already met some of these real-life vampires today. But you probably would have never known them. They don't usually look like the monsters in the movies or the gothic stereotypes. If you saw someone dressed like a vampire, that's a costume because they're in Salem. Or it's the kind of fashion they enjoy wearing. Real vampires are like serial killers. They usually blend in. You'd have no idea who it was until it was too late. And for all I know, you might be a vampire. You look normal. I didn't suspect you until right now. Now I suspect you a little bit. I'm kidding. I don't think any of you are vampires. And if you are, it's none of my business. But it has happened before. We had a really nice couple join us. They bought two tickets with a $100 bill and said to keep the change. They were laughing and asking good questions. They were taking tons of photographs and having fun. They were really into it. And we got to these stories. They got angry. As we walked along, I asked them why were they offended. So the reason they got upset is because they were vampires. One was the vampire, the other was the blood donor. They didn't like the fact that we were exposing them as a real phenomenon. And it could be anybody. It could be your boss at work or your kid's school bus driver. It could be your grandparents. In Boston, there was a prestigious private high school that was investigated. It was learned that some of the honor students had formed a vampire club. They were supposed to be watching movies and reading books. They got caught drinking the blood from other students. And in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts, another town pretty close to here, recently there was a shocking case. It involved an elderly couple. They were in their 80s when this happened. They'd been married to one another for over 60 years. Everyone thought they were a good couple, but the husband had a secret. He wanted to drink his wife's blood since they met when they were young, and he never dared to tell her. He figured time was running out, he better do it, held her down, got the axe, and he hacked off one of her arms. He drained her blood and he drank her. Then he butchered her flesh, fried her meat on the stove, and ate her body. Then he stuffed what remained under the bed and continued to pick at the corpse for weeks until the grandchildren visited and caught him in the act of eating their grandmother. So like I said, it could happen to anybody. What? Did y'all hear what she said? She said, vampires don't eat meat. And you know what? Most of them do, because most people do eat meat. He was a vampire and yeah, a cannibal. Yeah, but like animal meat. What? Animal meat, not human meat. Well, that's the thing. A supernatural fictional vampire can subsist solely on blood. A real-life vampire, as if you and I were vampires, would still have to eat food to survive. So yeah, he was a vampire, because he drank the blood. And he was also a cannibal because he was eating the flesh. Don't try it. I don't recommend. Are you really? <laughs> yes. That's so cool. Have you been to the Dracula's castle? We've been visiting, but not inside. I was so ready to go there, and then COVID came. We had to cancel our plans. 
Is it just pop things and get some books and pictures? I don't have pictures. I can't wait to fly to Lido. So have you visited Salem in the past? Has anybody come here in the past? If you'd been here about 10 years ago, you could have gone to a shop called Life and Death. Now, Life and Death is a cool store. They sold human bones, medical antiques, and sideshow freak paraphernalia, fun things like that. But unfortunately, Life and Death is not here anymore. The woman who owned Life and Death was a friend of mine, and she got in trouble. She thought it would be a good idea to let a vampire group have their meetings in her shop. She thought it would be something to promote, like a costume party or a role-playing game. But she ended up with a support group for people who were drinking each other's blood. So of course, Life and Death is not here anymore. Now, just in case these stories are giving you ideas, I do not recommend drinking blood. There is so much iron in blood, if you just start chugging it down, you'll throw it right back up and feel very sick. Even if you know it is clean blood from a willing partner, the human body cannot digest that much blood without getting sick. I don't recommend trying. But now that you know these folks exist, watch your step on the stairs. I'm going to go down this creepy alleyway here. I noticed that some of you looked excited when I mentioned human bones for sale. Believe it or not, it is totally legal in most states, including this one, as long as the bones are so old, they're museum pieces, or they're retired medical specimens. These little bones on my hat are metatarsals, like what you've got in your feet, and the little one on the back is a vertebrae. So you can absolutely buy bones while you're in town. This way. Do you know whose bones? Do you know whose bones they are from? Like, do you know I the name of the owner? I don't know whose bones these are specifically. These came from a medical supply place. Once you donate your body to science, once your organs are done saving lives and your bones are done being studied, you can end up on a hat. Uh, they have to kind of keep them anonymous when they're being sold onto the market, uh, just for personal type yeah, reasons. Yeah. I wish I knew whose bones these were. This one. Of course you can. <laughs> no killer? Yeah. Did you know that the Boston Strangler came to Salem? With a name like the Boston Strangler, you think he'd just be strangling people in Boston. But his most violent crime scene was in Salem. Right up the street here on Lafayette Street. Past the streetlight in an apartment on the right is where the Boston Strangler got his Salem victim. It was the 1960s and the Strangler would stalk women. and wait till there was a lonely woman at home and knock on the door. When she answered, he'd lie to her, saying he was a reporter looking for the woman with the best physical measurements in the country. Amazingly, some women fell for him. He'd take out a measuring tape and start measuring their bodies, and while they were distracted, he would choke them to death. Once they were dead, he'd peel off their stockings, tie up the dead body with the stockings, and do terrible things to the corpse. Then he'd flee the scene and plan his next murder. And for the longest time, no one knew the identity of this maniac. People around here were scared he could strike again any time. But one person kept confessing, a creep named Albert DeSalvo. DeSalvo would be arrested for robbery and harassing women, but not for murder. But every time he was caught doing something bad, he'd confess he was the strangler. No one believed him. They thought he was just a crazy guy who wanted attention. He even made a record where he confessed in a poem set to music that he was the strangler, and no one believed that. Eventually, he went to jail for the last time. He picked a fight with the wrong person and was stabbed in the heart over 20 times. Obviously, that killed him. He was quietly buried in Peabody, Massachusetts, the town next to Salem. He lay there undisturbed until 2012 when forensic scientists wanted to prove he was not the strangler. They exhumed his body from the earth 
They took a DNA sample, but to match the DNA against blood specimens from the Salem crime scene. To everybody's surprise, the blood and the DNA were a perfect match. DeSalvo had been telling the truth. He really had been responsible for at least some of the Stranger murders. He'd been hiding in plain sight the whole time. Since you got so excited about serial killers, I'm going to tell you about one we don't usually mention. A guy named Carl Panzran. Does that name sound familiar? He was brutal. He was one of America's first serial killers. When he was a little boy, he was sent to a religious reform school, and he thought he might grow up and be a minister. And he was disillusioned by how corrupt and abusive the ministers were, and he decided he'd rather be the world's worst criminal. He had a motto. He said he wished the world had one neck so he could step on it and kill everybody at once. During part of his criminal career, Hans Ram went on a rampage where he would steal a boat, go to a new port of call in the stolen boat, and then rob people, rape people, and murder people, and then steal a new boat and go somewhere else. He ended up coming to Salem. When he got here, he abducted a 12-year-old boy, coincidentally from the Gallows Hill neighborhood, did nasty things to him, and smashed his head with a rock to the point where the boy did not have a head anymore. Panzeram described the crime scene as the boy just had a pile of brains left on his chest. Then he hopped in a new boat and went somewhere else. At the end of his life, Panzeram was in jail one last time awaiting execution. He wrote a surprisingly eloquent autobiography all about his murders. When it came to the part about the Salem crime, the jailer, who was reviewing his work for publication, didn't believe him. He said it was too depraved and gross and Panzeram had to be making it up. Well, Panzeram insisted and eventually they cross-referenced the Salem police and found a cold case that matched up everything Pantram described. And just like the Salvo, he was telling the truth about his trip to Salem. Now, it's not just the murderers you like to visit. Harry Houdini came here too, the great magician and escape artist. He was on tour doing his magic and escape show when he learned that the Salem police had built a cell in their station they bragged was impossible for anyone to escape from. Houdini had to challenge them. He demanded they lock him up. The police were happy to do it. They thought they'd show the world not even Houdini could get out of this special cell. He escaped in just a few minutes. During the commotion, he let one of the other prisoners free, too. It happened right over there. See the trees with the lights in them? The brick building behind them used to be the police station. That's where Houdini did one of his greatest escapes. And there are a few options, including right at the end of this block here. See that building, the orange building with the green banner? From here we see the whole thing. As we walk up the street, you'll notice the first floor is below ground level of the adjacent cemetery. If you sit at the bar on the first floor, you're only about a foot away from the bodies underneath the earth. Now stay close. I'm going to go visit the cemetery. oldest European cemetery in the United States. They started filling it with bodies in 1637, just 11 years after the city of Salem was founded. It's so old, there's even a passenger from the Mayflower buried in here. Captain Richard Moore. He's the only Mayflower passenger anywhere. They got a marked grave right away when he died. Surprisingly, Johnny Cash's first American ancestor is buried here too. Captain William Cash. And of course, there are plenty of witch trial people townsfolk and accusers, and at least two of the judges. But you're not going to find any condemned witches. It was against the law to put a witch in sacred ground. 
Now, on the other side of the fence, is a modern memorial to the victims. That's just a place to honor their memory. Nobody's buried in the memorial. But you know who is buried in here is Judge John Hathorne. He was the cruelest of the witch trial hanging judges. Eventually, all the other judges, they apologized and repented. They said they felt bad about having those innocent people killed. But not Hathorne. He went to his grave thinking he'd done the right thing. Now, if the name Hathorne sounds familiar, you may have had to read the literature written by one of his descendants, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Hawthorne was so ashamed and embarrassed by his family connection to the witch trials, he changed his name. He had a W. He went from being Hathorne to Hawthorne, but it didn't fool anybody. People knew who he was related to, but Hawthorne got his revenge. When he wrote his novel, The House of the Seven Gables, he used his own terrible ancestor who's buried here. <coughs> that must have been all the blood I've been drinking, excuse me. <laughs> Hawthorne used his own miserable ancestor who's buried in this cemetery as the inspiration for the cruel judge in the book who died choking on his own blood. Now when you photograph here, or when you visit other haunted places on your own, always notice if your cameras do anything strange. You might find your full batteries drain all the way down to nothing in the blink of an eye. What's going on is sometimes the spirits can interfere with the equipment. We believe that ghosts are spirits or souls or whatever you'd like to call them. We believe that when you die, you might leave a little conscious or unconscious energy behind. What culture would you call a ghost? That's what we believe the phenomena is. What we can prove and quantify and measure is electrical in nature. That's why sometimes it will mess with the equipment. If everybody's camera fails at once, that's a good sign. And a good place to aim if you look right up the central path. See that large stone with the bronze map? Just beyond that, and a little to the left, is a small tombstone by itself. That's for a little girl named Rebecca Whitford. And the epitaph on her stone is tragic. It says her name, and the inscription reads, age seven and willing to die. Now, through the years, people saw willing to die on a child's tombstone. They thought it was religious, like willing to die and go to heaven. Makes sense of the kind of people buried here. The problem is, little Rebecca might not have been willing to die. According to the legend, this little girl may have been buried alive. They say she was sick and fell unconscious, but the family thought she was dead. They put her casket into the earth. The first shovel full of dirt on top of it woke her up. She started to scream and cry, but because she was sick, the family allowed her to get buried anyway. They did not want to risk her infecting the community, so they let her suffocate in the grave. That's the legend. But whatever really happened to her, to this day, next to that little tombstone, people still say they hear a child weeping. And on one occasion, we caught an audio recording of exactly that. That's what's called EVP, electronic voice phenomena. If you believe your home is haunted, the best way to try to get real evidence is to take an audio recording. You can use an application on your phone, but I find we get the best results with high-quality analog equipment. Put the recording device in the haunted place, let it record, and if you are very lucky when you play it back, you might hear ghostly voices trying to communicate. It's rare, but sometimes you'll get it. The best EVP I ever caught was right next to little Rebecca's tombstone, and it sounded like a crying child. Now, something to keep in mind while we're here at the cemetery. Tonight, mostly, we talked about 1692 and the Salem Witch Trials. During that part of our history, there were no witches in Salem whatsoever. There was Tituba, who was probably practicing voodoo, 
And there was Bridget Bishop and a few others who might have been doing protective English folk magic. But there was no one here then that by our standards would be considered a witch. But today, 2023, at least 20% of our modern population are real witches. Witchcraft is a huge part of our culture and our economy. Personally, I'm glad we've got the witches in Salem. I like to think of the purity that's rolling in their graves. Even as the end, it's like the witches won. Take a few pictures if you'd like. Head on up the street to our final stops. Our phones were doing something weird. Your phones were doing something weird where? They were right here when we were trying to take pictures. Funny story. All Not long ago, uh, we were doing a thing with one of the local news stations. The camera guy clearly was skeptical and didn't believe any of it, yet he had to run back to the van three times to get a brand new one of those great big battery packs. Mm -hmm. And we were standing basically right where you are when it kept failing out like that. Yeah, it kept going between like one to three seconds. It wouldn't take a picture. Did it, did it happen to capture anything or no? I don't know. <laughs> Everybody, please stay close. I'll be here for a few moments. If anyone has questions or anything to share, I'll be happy to talk to you. And if you need to return to where we started, if the visitor center and the bell is your reference point, it's very easy to get to. Just walk to the end of this museum building, take a left up the red brick path, you'll be right back where we started. We went in a big circle so you don't get lost. And thank you all for coming. Did y'all have a good time? Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, you don't have to clap until we're done, but thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you came out. This was a fun group. Please do remember, if you enjoyed the experience, to tell them on TripAdvisor or one of the other review sites. The five-star reviews help out a lot. But only do that if you had a good time. Also, please remember, it's your tips that keep us in business, so feel free to do that if you'd like. And importantly, if you believe your home is haunted, if you've got good ghost stories of your own, get one of my cards and take victims from the dungeon to his private house to torture away from prying eyes. Well, even though any potential bodies are long gone, people still claim to see Corbett's angry spirit and at least one of the people he killed haunting the property. That's the victim you're going to see right now a bizarre female apparition called the Lady in Black. When this picture was taken, there was a real estate agency in the home. A man with an old black and white Polaroid camera was trying to photograph the employees. He was trying to get a picture of this girl. Her name is Julie. This is just a reference photo of Julie. So you can see the subject was supposed to be a normal person. This is who he wanted a picture of. Well, Julie screamed when the image developed because she wasn't in it superimposed on top of Julie was this, the lady in black. Look at the bizarre, distorted facial features. Look at the elongated fingers, the antiquated 1600 style dress. Clearly, this weird apparition is not the normal girl of the first image. Through the years, skeptics have tried to debunk the lady in black, but they always come back with the same answer. She's either unexplainable, but have finally been shown a true apparition. The reason I asked some of you what hotels you're in is because tonight, some people are spending the night with the lady in black. They turned the most haunted home in Salem into a bed and breakfast. If you're in the merchant, you're staying with her. Nobody's there, are they? Now here is a perfect example of what an orb should look like. 
See that solid globe of energy in the center of the frame? Mm -hmm. Notice it is translucent. You can see through it, but there's no gaps or breaks, no motion line to indicate dust or debris. And it makes sense the image was captured in the old jail. Places where people suffer from heightened emotions and repetitive activity really tend to draw the energy back. If you think you got orbs, you want to compare them with something like this. Is that the basement where you work? Is that where that is? This is in the old jail, not the dungeon. Uh oh. The jail was pretty bad though. It was built in 1811. They didn't close it until 1996. The prisoners had no electricity and no plumbing. They were putting six people at a time into cells built to hold two. And you know what's in that jail now? Expensive condoms. <laughs> now, here's one. Who's planning on sneaking up to Gallows Hill? I know you already wrote wet. This picture might make you want to go even more. This is from one of our very first investigations over 20 years ago. This was taken before the city even admitted that Proctor's Ledge was the hanging site. We had the old maps and we snuck up there. Doesn't it look like two figures embraced in the ectoplasm? See that substance starting to take shape? Remarkably, this was visible to the naked eye when the flash illuminated it. This image was captured right where you'll be and right where you were if you look up Proctor's Ledge. Remember, only go during the day. Don't do what we did. Now, this one's a favorite. This comes from New Orleans. And most of the time in New Orleans, when people die, their bodies are put in tombs or crypts above ground. However, some people, particularly the poor people, are buried down in the earth. In the photograph here, where I'm pointing now, that little white rectangle, that's a tombstone. The correlating body would be in the earth beneath it. Look where I'm pointing here. See that streak of energy rising out of the earth? That's the ectoplasm. Wherever that person was, the grave couldn't hold them. So the energy coming out of the earth into the atmosphere. Now, if you've been to New Orleans, you've probably been to the cemetery in this picture. This is the same one where Marie Laveau, the voodoo queen, was laid to rest and where Nicolas Cage has his pyramid. Now, remember how I mentioned that animals are so much more sensitive than people? Here's a fun picture to demonstrate that. This image was sent to us by one of our guests. They moved into a home that was new to them as soon as they did, they say their cats lost their mind. We had them take some pictures, and this developed. The orb is faint, but ran around right up close. Look right where the cat's looking. He's looking directly at that little orb. Now, it seems like a cute picture, a cat with an orb. Then we did the historic research on the property. Turns out the last people who lived there, before the new family and a cat moved in, died in a horrible murder-suicide. We think the animal may have been in touch with that energy. So if your pets start acting stranger than usual, take some pictures and do some research. Now the final image might disturb you. This is the best apparition I've ever collected. This comes from an investigation in Watertown, Massachusetts, another Boston suburb. We were called about a great big historic home they say has been haunted for at least 200 years. The people who own it wanted us to figure out what was going on. We were looking for clues in their photo archive and found a box of pictures all dated from 1910. Most of them were normal, like family gatherings and old furniture. But look at the one image that really surprised us. See the woman sitting on the couch? You can see right through her body. Notice how the woman does not cast a shadow. The shadow in the foreground, that's the shape of the furniture, not the woman herself. You can see details of her face. <coughs> look at the creepy little doll on the couch. You can see the doll through the woman's body. I'll enlarge it so you can get a better look at her face and the doll. Isn't that weird? Now we know this is not a Photoshop fake because that didn't exist in 1910. It cannot be a real woman in motion. 
that's what was going on, the big blur, not the slow fade out on her shoulder. It's not crisp enough to be a double exposure hoax like they used to make. As far as I'm concerned, this is the real thing. Now, the people we got it from are happy to have it proved or disproved. They say it's all right to publish and share with an audience. They made us promise not to reveal which historic home it came from. I don't blame them for that, but I certainly hope none of you will have anything like her following you home tonight. And thank you all very much for joining us. Thank you for coming out tonight. All right, so there you go, man. Hope you enjoyed listening to that that Salem Ghost Tour. Some cool, you know, true horror stories of Salem's past. I did go, I don't know if I say it on this podcast or not, but I did go to Gallows Hill, and the uh, camera did, like, take some weird photos that I'll put on the thumbnail of this podcast. And uh, it was a... A trippy experience going up there. Um, that was really the the true haunt, most haunted feeling spot, Gallows Hill for sure. Uh, the witch's dungeon thing, no, no, nothing like that. Um, the graveyard, not not really. Um, kind of crazy stories about the people that are buried there but nothing nothing too crazy but the energy at gallows hill i will say um kind of wild up there at that point um the uh giles quarry spot also that he does talk about on this tour right off the get-go and that church where they talk about moving the the headstones um that whole situation those two spots on the ghost tour i think had different feelings than everything else uh the energy at that church was definitely weird where our cameras were doing stuff and the giles Corey spot the energy was definitely weird although our cameras didn't do anything so there's definitely that um anyway man I will talk to you guys this week. We have on Campfire Chronicles, we have our Sinister Creature Con uh, audio. Next week on this show, we will have the audio of the Lord Blood Raw and Miss Misery uh, panel from Sinister Creature Con. We'll kind of begin our Sinister Creature Con rollout of uh, interviews that we did over the course and you can watch those videos of those panels and any sinister creature con real uh of the past five years on our youtube channel uh, we have playlists of all those panels and it's always a fun time to go back and watch them so thank you for having fun with us on this show and i hope that you enjoyed listening to the ghost tour and Stay spooky, everybody. We'll be back next week.